0: Uh, Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 18 through 27. Open your Bible, or if you have an electronic device with Bibles on it, you can navigate there. Matthew 8, verses 18 through 27, if you're visiting or if you're new, we're studying through the gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The topic we encounter this morning is this. Jesus and his disciples encounter a violent storm as they attempt to cross over the Sea of Galilee. The title of our message, Riders on the Storm. (laughs) Let's have a word of prayer. Well, that's what they were. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. I'm so glad, Lord, to be here with my brothers and sisters in Christ with the, the body of Calvary Chapel of Hanford, some of us, Lord, we've been together for many, many years just enjoying your presence and your teaching and your worship and, and just the encouragement, Lord, that, that you've brought us in and through our lives. We've been through uh, good times together, bad times together, Lord, and we've seen your faithfulness. And so we wanna declare, Lord, our gratitude for all of that. We've worshiped you this morning, Lord, opening up our hearts to let you know how we feel. And now we want you to speak to us through your word. I pray that we would be those believers that have ears to hear what the Spirit says. We ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, amen. I've just recently discovered there are a few shops in America that are dedicated to what are called extreme donuts. Anybody into the world of extreme donuts here? It's a very fascinating world. I want to get into it. Forget toppings like Sprinkles. Now there's habanero pepper jelly with cream cheese. That's called the slow burn at a place called Gowerdough's in Austin, Texas. And peanut butter glaze with bacon and banana. That's called the Elvis at Ike and Jane in Atlanta. Voodoo donuts in Portland. You'd have to go into a place like that, wouldn't you? Well, maybe not as a Christian, you'd think, ooh, what is going on in there? But anyway... Voodoo Donuts in Portland invited controversy after adding NyQuil and Pepto-Bismo to donuts in its menu. The potent pastries were immediately discontinued after a scolding by the FDA for putting medicine in food. Do they still make NyQuil? It's not the NyQuil, it's not your mother's NyQuil, I'll tell you that. When I was a kid, I used to fake colds to have NyQuil. Man, that stuff. Once they told me there was alcohol in that, bring it on. But anyway... Maybe you didn't know that. San Jose's, if, you're, if your NyQuil is disappearing, you've got a problem. San Jose's Psycho Donuts. These are real places. Psycho Donuts celebrated National Donut Day in 2012. By the way, did you realize today is National Coffee Day? How many of you knew that? A few of you did. A few of you really hardcore. Uh, but anyway, National Donut Day 2012, they released two donuts that included edible insects. The Chirp Derp, was a chocolate donut topped with bacon bits, bacon cheddar crickets, and a drizzle of milk chocolate. The wormhole took a jalapeno and tequila donut and covered it with salted lime icing, a key lime drizzle, and spiced moth larvae. Hey, some of you, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. As I was sitting there this morning, I thought maybe we at Calvary Hanford could figure out a way to take because we buy donuts every week from, I think, Donut King, we could get a cake donut and come up with some extreme recipe of our own. In fact, I challenge you to come up, and we'll put it on our menu. You come up with an extreme donut that's actually tasty. I don't care what's on it, as long as it tastes good. No fried donut. We're not gonna fry any donuts. That's, that's too easy. Uh, and you come up with it, we'll put it on the menu. Now, the word extreme, that's what came to my mind reading our text this week, Jesus makes extreme claims upon the lives of two of his followers, explaining to one that he will be homeless, and to the other that as a disciple, he doesn't have the luxury of staying around to bury his own father. And then Jesus remains totally calm while he and his closest disciples are caught in an extreme storm at sea. There may even be a connection between his claims and his calm. That is, if you will submit yourself to his claims upon you, upon your life, you can experience his calm in your life. I'll try to develop that theme by organizing my thoughts around two points. Number one, when you follow Jesus, expect him to make extreme claims upon your life. And number two, when you follow Jesus, expect him to instill extreme calm into your life. First of all, let's look at the claims he makes in verses 18 through 22. 22. I want to eavesdrop on both of these conversations before we comment on either one of them. And so by that, I mean, let's read verses 18 through 22 together. It says, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. And then a certain scribe came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. If you are a sincere believer, you've gotta be asking yourself, is Jesus calling me to homelessness and poverty? Is he demanding I abandon my responsibilities to my family? Well, the answer to those questions is both yes and no. Let's start with the no answer first. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that establish we are not called to homelessness and poverty. There's nothing more spiritual about being homeless and impoverished. There are also abundant scriptures on family roles and responsibilities, on being a good spiritual husband and wife and uh, father and mother and son and daughter and those kinds of things. So no, we are not all called to be homeless and impoverished and to abandon our family responsibilities, but yes, Jesus said these words and he meant them. Throughout the history of the church, there have been disciples whose lives were either temporarily or totally touched by extremes like this. I think the solution is this, because of who he is and on account of what he has done for us, Jesus reserves the right to make extreme claims upon our lives. Jesus reserves the right to make extreme claims upon our lives. You should understand he is the Lord who bought you with his blood and he has the right to guide and direct your discipleship and your service as he sees fit. If your entire life isn't extreme in its discipleship and service, then moments in it will be. They have to be if you are really his because this is how he uh, relates to his disciples. Now let's go back and see the story unfold and see a little bit more about what we're talking about. Verse 18, introducing us to this section says, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Jesus was led perfectly by God the Holy Spirit. In this case, he was led to leave the multitudes, go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Now, we might suggest at least one reason he was led away, or one benefit of it, we might say. In the verses immediately preceding these, Jesus had healed everyone in that region. He had preached the gospel and healed everyone in that region. We would suggest that he was needed elsewhere. Why establish a ministry where he had completed a ministry? He needed to go elsewhere where the gospel hadn't reached yet. Now, too often when people feel called to ministry, they don't go very far, and they don't go where there is really a need. They move a few blocks down the street and they minister to folks who are already being ministered to. It's not really very godly. In fact, it has a name among church planters it's called splanting a combination of the words split and plant because these guys are only planting a new church by splitting an existing church and so a lot of people say oh i just planted a church really where right next door to my old church who's going to it all a bunch of people that don't know the lord no half of the people that were at my old church but we're a better church And and I'm not saying there's not ever a reason to leave a church, to move to another church or anything, but I think you understand what I'm saying. If you're called to minister, go someplace where people are calling for ministry. There are plenty of places where there is a real need for the gospel, not just a different flavor, not just a, 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 you know, we sing songs a little faster or a little slower, or our pastor preaches for 40 minutes instead of 35 minutes, things like that. A lot of, in the United States, we get into so many stylistic differences. Uh, and, and really, there are places in the world where there's a real need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't know where they are, we'll send you to one of them. Now, make a mental note. If you would, that Jesus gave a command to depart to the other side. That's going to be an important detail during the upcoming storm. Verse 19 says, Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Today we would call this a buzzkill. Here was a guy ready to totally sell out for God and Jesus immediately puts him on notice just how costly following him might be. I think what the Lord was trying to get across was that following him required an absolute commitment to whatever he had in store and wherever he might lead. As we said earlier, not everyone is called to homelessness and poverty, but if you follow Jesus, it is a distinct possibility. Throughout history, following Jesus has come at great cost to multitudes of his disciples. In most of the world, certainly in the third world, this is a reality today. If you want to follow Jesus, it comes at a great personal, financial, social cost. Jesus may keep you on the same path you were on, in the same job or in the same city. Hallelujah. Because we love Hanford, right? Everybody wants to stay in Hanford. I actually do want to stay in Hanford. I'm afraid now that I would have to leave Hanford. It's such a cool place. But a lot of, you know, most of the people I've encountered over the years, not the young people, but people my age, is like, well, I don't want to go anywhere. Los Angeles, they drive like crazy, man. You can't drive in Los Angeles, you know, and all this kind of stuff. People want to stay. They want to develop a life. And for most of the time, it seems like God honors that he, he may not call you to leave, but he may. It's up to him now whether you will prosper or no poverty, whether you will build a home or become homeless. He has every right to make extreme claims upon your life. In First Corinthians 6.20, it says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are uh, God's, excuse me. And so the the picture is that, uh, that we were in slavery to the devil and to sin, and the Lord bought us out of slavery, and he set us free, but he set us free to follow him and to serve him. You were bought and belonged to God. The price he paid was that of his blood shed on the cross for your sins. Now, almost everyone assumes that this scribe refused to follow Jesus once he was presented with this information. Where does it say he refused to follow Jesus? Well, it doesn't. And so I choose to think he did follow Jesus. I choose to think of him as a Nicodemus or a Joseph of Arimathea, guys who stepped up and declared their faith in Jesus Christ despite the cost. He was someone who understood the cost of discipleship and chose to follow anyway. We can't be sure either way, but why always go to the negative? Uh, Give the benefit of the doubt. He said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, just know that this is the cost of it, and so let's assume that he paid that price. Verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The scribe was not yet a disciple when he first approached Jesus. We could say his encounter with Jesus was a call to discipleship, and the Lord was letting him know there was a cost. This second individual was already a disciple. Jesus gave the command that they were leaving the region to go to the other side, and this guy was letting the Lord know that he had other pressing business and therefore couldn't go on this missions trip. He had to bury his father. Now, it's almost certain that his father was not yet dead, and he probably wasn't even sick. For one thing, in Jewish culture in the first century, the dead were buried within hours of dying. They didn't embalm and they didn't have any long drawn out funeral procedures. Uh, When you died, uh, you were buried immediately. This expression, bury my father, is actually a common one used to indicate that a person had obligations to fulfill in his family. He was letting the Lord know that his priorities were to his family and he wanted to therefore postpone going on this trip with the Lord. If we're not careful, we can develop an attitude of postponement, Uh, and that's what I want to talk about for just a minute, and I feel like I have a freedom to talk about this because we're the kind of church, we are a church that doesn't put real pressure on you. If you're feeling pressure, it's not from us. Uh, Nobody's pressuring you to come to church. If you don't come, if you come for a while and don't come, we might call you because we love you and see if everything's all right. We might not. Sometimes I get in trouble for that because people think I quit coming to church and nobody called me. We want to, believe me, we love you but we're not, we don't wanna put pressure on you. You're here because you're walking with the Lord and we are trying to augment that walk with the Lord and encourage you and, and, and teach you God's word and give you opportunity to serve, that kind of thing. But we don't make a big deal about it. So having said all that, there is in American Christianity, I believe, an attitude of postponement. It seems like there are always pressing issues that compete with serving the Lord. And many of them involve family responsibilities or at least what we would call family activities. We prioritize by saying, if I ask you what are your priorities as a Christian, you would say immediately, God first, family second, job third. And for the most part, you'd be right. You can't always put things in that order because sometimes you have to go to work. You can't really put God and your family first when you have to go to work. And so tomorrow when you get up, you have a regular job. You can't say, well, my priority is God and so I'm not going to work today. Well, then you won't have a priority of having a job because you won't have one anymore. So, so priorities, we have, you know they are flexible, but generally speaking, we think God's my first priority, then my family, then my job. In actual practice, however, we think we're putting God first by putting our family first and not doing anything with or for God. And so people get involved in all kinds of family activities. All kinds of family activities, most of which have nothing directly to do with the gospel or God. And then if you ask them, you say, well, I put put my family first, and as a Christian man and woman, that's what I should do. So by default, I'm serving God by serving my family in all these non-Christian activities. I'm good. And that may or may not be true. You have to decide for yourself. There is an attitude of postponement where people just, and I'm not talking about doing anything harm. I'm not talking here about you know, going overseas and ministering to cannibals. I'm just talking about coming to church, serving at church, being on a rotation, you know, ministering in that way. Uh, and so it's something that we should take to heart because pretty soon we talk ourselves out of serving God altogether while at the same time we believe we're serving him. What this disciple said in a sense was commendable. He had family responsibilities, but not to the Lord and not at that moment. Follow me, the Lord said, and let the dead bury their own dead. On the list of things you don't expect Jesus to say to you, this is in the top five, I think. How can the dead bury their own dead? Well, he meant that they were spiritually dead, not physically dead. No one was physically dead. No one was even dying at this point. The disciples' spiritual work at home was done. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, as far as your home is concerned right now, your spiritual work is done, at least for now. And it's time to take the gospel elsewhere so that others who are spiritually dead can be made alive by its power. It was a word unique for this disciple. It may be unique for some of us right now or at some point in our lives, but I I think you get the point. Now, notice something interesting The disciple, and I have no doubt that this was a sincere disciple who had been following Jesus and and thought, I'd love to go with you over to the Sea of Galilee, but I have these responsibilities. He said, and I'm sure he didn't realize he was saying this, but he said, let me first. And then he went on. This me first, that's not a good philosophy for serving Jesus. If Jesus is talking to you and you find yourself saying, well, Lord, let me first, well, then you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so it's a very easy thing to fall into. You may never be called upon to leave home and family to serve the Lord. Or you may be called upon to do exactly that in a very radical way. What I'm saying this morning is that Jesus has the right to make that claim upon your life based on who he is and what he's done. And so ask yourself, am I postponing serving God on account of a me-first attitude in any area of my life? It's an important question. Now, again, we're left to wonder at this disciple's response. And again, I choose to think he received Jesus' words, left home, and went with the Lord on his mission. Now, another thing we might say about the fact that we don't know how either of these guys answered is that by leaving it open, ended, it causes us to consider how we might answer. You and I could be told these same things by the Lord at any time. When was the last time you seriously thought God could shake up your life in a way that would promote a deeper discipleship and a more serious service? When God could just lift you out of the life you're living right now and either move you into a different career path or a different place because he has the right to do that. And that's the impact of these verses. They're a challenge to us as average, everyday Christians who definitely love Jesus and who live in relative comfort to recognize his right to make extreme claims upon our lives, and we just leave it there. Say, Lord, you have the right by virtue of your death and resurrection, and I want to obey you. And so I'm just ready, Lord, for what you have for me. Now, verses 23 through 27, God can instill an extreme calm into your life. We can assume that the disciples on the boat with Jesus crossing over to the other side were okay with these extreme claims that the Lord was making. They had made this full commitment he required and they were going with him on this journey. The Lord would now use the journey to develop their faith to grow them, to mature them. And so we read here about this boat ride where the Lord would show them where they were in their spiritual growth and show them where he could take them over time. Verse 23, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now the word followed ties this story together with the verses on discipleship we've just read. It it seems like a separate story, but this word tells us that Jesus is showing us something about discipleship, about what will happen when we follow him. The boat ride becomes a parable to illustrate what it's like when a disciple is willing to follow Jesus. There arose a great tempest on the sea. This is an unusually violent storm, perhaps even satanic in its empowering. For one thing, think of the timing of the storm. Is it really a coincidence it came just when Jesus and his boys were crossing over and would be in the greatest danger? Now commentators say, and historians tell us that storms sweep through this area suddenly, but at this exact moment when the Lord could be in danger and when his disciples could be in danger, I I think there's a satanic element. Waves were swamping the boat. It's way worse than Deadliest Catch. I mean, this is, you ever watch Deadliest Catch? I love Deadliest Catch. It's the only great reality show on television. And I get seasick watching Deadliest Catch. I don't know how those guys can do it. I guess for 100 grand for two weeks work, I maybe, you know, well, I still couldn't do it. But anyway, waves are swamping the boat. All hands would be on deck, bailing water and fighting the storm. Verse 25, then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing At some point, the disciples, some of them experienced boatmen, realized they were going to perish. This tells us we as disciples can expect that at some point or some points along our journey with Jesus, we will be in situations that have no natural resolution to them. There will be nothing we can do, no one who can help us. Without the Lord, we would perish. Jesus was asleep. He must have been exhausted from the previous day's ministry. As a note, I would say there are going to be times when serving the Lord makes extreme physical demands upon your life. There's nothing wrong becoming exhausted serving God. Now, on the one hand, we commend the disciples for going to Jesus and for believing he could do something to save them. They'd seen him cast out demons and cure the sick, but... This is a miracle of nature. What what is the Lord going to do except grab a bucket and help Baal? And so they, they went to the Lord and they believed He could do something. At the same time, their faith was mingled with fear because they said, Lord, we're going to perish. Now, they could have believed they would not perish because Jesus had clearly indicated they were going to the other side. Remember, I told you to remember that? Jesus said, Let's get in a boat and go to the other side. He didn't say, Let's get into a boat and go under. And so he had a confidence that where the Lord, where his Father was leading him, he would get there. And that's why Jesus was asleep. He didn't care if it was calm or stormy. He was going to get to the other side. And that's what the disciples could have understood as well. What should they have done then? Well, it's hard to say, but maybe they too should have gone to sleep because that's the example Jesus set for them. You see how unusual this is? You're caught in a storm, it's unusually violent you're an experienced boatman, but there's nothing you can do, are you gonna suggest, why don't we just go to sleep like Jesus is? No, you're probably gonna fight and bail and do all of this stuff and call on the Lord, but the example Jesus set is to just fall asleep. They could have rested in the storm. They could have gotten caught up on their sleep. It's so hard to rest in the storm. I always feel like I'm not doing it. Don't you feel that way, get into a thing and then you realize it's a trial and you think I'm just not doing very good in this, I'm not resting in this. However, you look back on your life, you've been a Christian for a while, there are some things that now when they happen, you're more at rest, you're more at peace. When the devil throws them at you, you, you recognize the source and you think, hey, Lord, you've got this. Nothing I can do about it, I leave this with you. But there's always new storms, aren't there? And you have to learn this lesson in a deeper and more profound way. It's so hard to rest in the storm. I want to always do something. I want to bail out the boat. I want the Lord to do something. All the while, he's trying to get me to rest in the midst of that storm. Verse 26, he said to them, why are you fearful, oh, you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I have a picture that they're down in the belly of the boat, and they're all around, you know, trying to wake him up, and he... One eye open, he says, why are you fearful? Then he gets up on deck and he deals with the storm. Now, it's instructive that Jesus took time to address the disciples first. At least in Matthew's gospel, that's the order that he puts it in. If I'm on the boat, I want the storm stopped and then give me the lesson, right? I'm about to perish. Lord, deal with the storm and then talk to me about it. But the storm often is the lesson, or at least it's the context in which the lesson is going to be taught. Now, we suggested earlier that the storm was of satanic origin because of the way it's described. In a very real sense, all storms are satanic in that they speak of God's original creation having been tainted by sin in the Garden of Eden. God isn't the source of them, but he is your resource in them. The overarching lesson is that your faith conquers fear. And there's a sense in which, as a Christian, you need never be afraid. Now realize, however, that fearlessness is something you grow into as you walk with the Lord. The heroes of the faith in the Bible grew in their fearlessness as they grew in their faith. In the Old Testament, the father of our faith, Abraham, was told by God, fear not, after he'd been walking with the Lord for some time. In the New Testament, the veteran apostle Paul, considered by many the greatest example of what it means to be a Christian, after he'd been ministering to the Lord for quite a while, is visited by the Lord in the city of Corinth in a vision at night, and the Lord says to him, Paul, don't be afraid. Why? Because he was afraid. The episode on the sea, this great tempest, was to show the disciples where they were at and where Jesus was taking them. He was taking them to the place of spiritual rest in him. Even in the most extreme storms of life, maybe of satanic origin, they could know the most extreme calm of heart. They could be like Jesus and be asleep. They weren't there yet, they hadn't arrived. It would take many days, many years of walking with Jesus and seeing him care for them, but they could grow and mature in their faith. Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm not a ripple, immediately the sea was glass and the air was still. This would have been creepy. I mean, exciting, but creepy. I, mean, I don't know, have you ever experienced anything like that? Where, you know, where it's, you know, you're at sea and tossing about and it's windy and then all of a sudden you're on glass? It doesn't happen that way naturally because this is supernatural. Jesus just spoke to the elements and they immediately changed. Stopping the storm is easy for the Lord. Developing your faith so that you no longer fear, so that you know extreme calm, that's what's really difficult. So he uses the storms of life, he takes advantage of them. I've told you the story a couple of times at least over the years of a friend of mine down in Southern California. I was visiting him one time in one of the beach cities and uh, early in the morning, he got a phone call. Next thing I know, he grabs this go bag that he has packed and he's running out the door and I said, hey, what's up? There was a storm brewing and he had signed up for a sailing class and one of the units was foul weather sailing and they needed a storm in order to sail in it to learn the techniques of foul weather sailing and so when the storm hit, they were excited to get out in the storm It was crazy, I know, but if you want to sail, you better know what you're doing. They needed a storm, and they took advantage of it, and so here's a thought. If this terrible, violent storm was satanic in origin, which do you think would defeat the devil more? Jesus ordering it to cease, or the disciples remaining calm in it, trusting in the Lord by faith? I mean, let's say that it's the, you know, the devil... He's trying to destroy Jesus, he's trying to kill him, he's trying to wipe out the disciples, get them to scatter, and so he concocts this storm. It's the best he can do. He's he's the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, and he, he concocts this storm. Jesus calms it, everything's fine, but imagine the frustration of the devil if everybody just sleeps through the storm. If he has hair, he must be pulling it out. You know, and so when you're in a storm, think about that. Think about that. So the men marvelled, verse 27, saying, "Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who are these random men?" Well, the Gospel of Mark tells us other little boats followed Jesus. Think of the effect of the disciples on these other men. Frantically bailing water, they seem no better off than nonbelievers. Boat after boat. They're bailing water and worrying about their lives. But then they did go to the Lord for help, and that was indeed a great witness. I mean, if you're a non-believer, you think, what can Jesus do in this situation? In fact, at first you think, look, Jesus isn't even helping you. We're all in this together. There's no, makes no difference to be a Christian. You're bailing, we're bailing. Where's Jesus? And then all of a sudden, you go to the Lord And he solves the situation and they reap the benefits of it. So it is a testimony. Even the little faith of the disciples was a witness. And so let's not discount that too fast. Because quite honestly, most of the time you and I have little faith. And we beat ourselves up over it. And I'm not saying it's a good thing to remain in little faith. But even your little faith, God uses as a testimony to others. Now, had they been sleeping as Jesus was, well, that would have been a great witness. Imagine in the middle of this storm looking over at the Jesus boat and seeing nobody on deck because they're all sleeping. Are those guys crazy? I don't know what would have happened. I guess you'd, they would have just ridden out the storm and gotten to the other side. But they would have been rested. We can only speculate. What I'm saying by way of encouragement is that while Jesus is growing you, he still uses you along the way. And so again, don't beat yourself up too much when situations reveal fears instead of faith. You're right there somewhere in your walk with the Lord with Abraham and Paul, who continually needed to be growing in this area. Now, one final observation. It was the disciples who submitted themselves to Jesus' extreme claims who experienced his extreme calm. Only those who followed him onto the boat who said, okay, Lord, I hear you saying that I might be homeless someday, I might be in poverty, I I might have to leave my family, I'm willing to do all that, they're the ones who experience this great calm. The Lord has the right to make those claims either upon your entire life or at certain key moments in it. You and I do seem to have a right of refusal. The scribe and the son could have stayed behind, maybe they did, but it was up to them. But When you stay behind, you'll always be a Christian who wants Jesus to calm the storm when he wants to calm you. Let's pray.